ancient words, words that God spoke long ago, ever true. They were true then, just now, just as they were then, changing me, changing you. That's what good and right thoughts to have about Scripture, isn't it? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I've titled this Christian Securities Against Unchristian Hostility. Christian Securities Against Unchristian Hostilities. We'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. And this text comes to us near the end of a section that Peter began in chapter 2, verse 11. And in this larger section, he's been telling Christians, many of which who are suffering, how they are to be conducting themselves in the midst of their suffering. He began by addressing us as people who live in this world. And then he addressed us as citizens, as citizens of a kingdom. He addressed us as slaves under, um, under masters. He addressed us as husbands and wives. And then in the four verses we looked at last time in this book, he addressed us as brothers. In this passage, after going through all that, you may be poised to ask a good question. Am I supposed to just be a marshmallow? Are we, are Christians, supposed to be cream puffs while we live this life? Are we... Should we expect nothing more than to be punching bags, just taking the hostilities, taking whatever is thrown against us? Well, in this passage, in verses 13 through 16, Peter has some encouraging words to give us. He speaks to all who would live godly lives in the midst of an ungodly and unchristian hostile culture. And he, What he's going to do is he's going he's to give us five principles that... We need to embrace five principles that we need to apply to equip ourselves and to defend ourselves, to make ourselves more secure against the hostilities of this unbelieving world. Now, in verse 13, we're going to see that we are to have a zeal for goodness. We are to be zealous for good. In verse 14, the beginning of verse 14, he's going to tell us that we need to have a willingness to suffer. And then continuing in verse 14, going into verse 15, we need to have a devotion to Christ. Finishing verse 15, he will say you need to be ready to defend your faith. And then finishing in verse 16, have a clean conscience. Those are the five principles he gives us to make ourselves more secure, to be more adequately equipped, to be more adequately defensible in your Christian walk. Let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, 13-16, Peter asks, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... You are blessed. 
And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, the first principle he gives us that we see in verse 13 is that we are to have a zeal for goodness. And he asks us rhetorically, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question. There's an implied answer. He doesn't want you to actually start listing out, well, there's Joe down the street, there's my boss, there's my neighbor, sometimes my wife's a little cranky. No, no, no. The, the, the implied answer is nobody. And if there is, there's not many. This is a general principle. This is a, a general observation about life, and, and Peter lays this down. He's establishing this as a first line of defense and reinforcing you to suffer well. And that's, that's been Peter's overall theme in this book. He is encouraging Christians who are suffering while instructing them how to suffer well. He doesn't want you, he doesn't want me to be ignorant of the reality that sometimes Christians suffer. Sometimes bad things happen to us. And the truth is we ought to expect it and we ought to be prepared for it. And he said as much in verses 18 to 20 of the previous chapter. And he looked there at two kinds of suffering, just suffering and unjust suffering. Those are labels that I, I provide and he, where in verse 20, he asks, uh, again, another rhetorical question. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Implied answer is there's no credit. Because when you, when you fail to do what's expected of you, be it in your job, be it in your marriage, be it in society, when you fail to do what is right and instead do what is wrong, Peter's assuming that you can put two and two together and know and not be surprised that there are consequences. That is what I call just suffering. It is sensible suffering. It is rational suffering. It is suffering that can be explained as to why it happens, as to why this is your lot. And on the other hand, there is unjust suffering. There is suffering that is not justified. It's suffering that is insensible. And this is suffering that even though you do nothing to provoke it, even though you do nothing to instigate it, and though you do nothing to bring it down upon you, it nevertheless comes down upon you. Now, Peter is zeroing in on this unjust suffering, on the occasions when suffering falls upon you, even though you have done nothing to provoke it. Maybe because someone just doesn't like you. Maybe because they don't like your faith. Maybe because they don't like your skin color or the way you dress. Maybe it's because they don't like the song that you hum when you're at work. I had a coworker when I worked at Starbucks who would get very edgy if I started whistling Christmas tunes before Thanksgiving. 
As a general principle, people are less likely to make your life difficult if you prove yourself zealous for good. That's a general principle. It's not an absolute fact, but it's a general principle. It's, it's not a guarantee for all the circumstances in your life all the time, but this is, this is a maxim. This is, a, a, again, a general, general principle that you can apply to prevent many occasions where you might unnecessarily provoke or instigate your own suffering because of how someone would perceive what you did or what you said. Generally speaking, when someone is proven to be zealous and passionate for doing good unto others, when, when they are known for being selfless, when they have a reputation for being charitable, for being serving, for giving unto others, when they, when they are known by an uncompromised morality, when they have a favorable disposition, when they have a character and a personality that is beyond reproach. When even a pagan says, now that's a good man, or that's a good woman, that person is generally going to be, is, is generally going to stave off the hostility of others. Even in, and even in occasions where you may be understood, if that's, the, if that's the case with you, if that's the kind of person that you're known for being, you'll often be given the benefit of the doubt. That's what, that's what we want, isn't it? On the other hand, if you have a, a compromised morality, if you are known for being hurtful, harmful, harsh, if you're known for having a short temper, if you are known as that guy who flies off the handle for the littlest thing, if you have a questionable character, don't be surprised when you are not given the benefit of the doubt, and furthermore, when you are suspected of evil. Peter says in verse 13, to prove yourself to be zealous for what is good. And I think he even understands this is something that doesn't come quite naturally to us because the, in the Greek, the word is not prove yourself, it's become. So Peter, in a sense, is saying, if you're not currently being zealous for good, become zealous for good. Start being zealous for good. And this, this word zealous, zeal, it speaks of intensity, of enthusiasm. This is describing a, a great and passion, a great and dedicated passion for a specific cause. And we we see this all around us. Some some people are, are zealous for uh, for investing in stocks and following up on stocks and or, or, or sports. And they talk uh, about all about sports stuff. And they even have big old diagrams of that fantasy football thing in their living room. I'm not pointing any fingers. Some people are known for uh, being quite savvy and following up on politics. And some of you discovered a guy who, is, who has a, a zealous curiosity and fascination with World War II yesterday. Be zealous for good. Be, be a zealot for good. And in the hundred years or so before Christ was walking the earth, there was this radical political party named the Zealots. 
and you can uh, you can pick up a book called uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power by Nick Needham. I know Eric Carlson has a copy of that. Uh, and, and he talks about the zealots in the first chapter. They were men who pledged to free the Jewish nation and the Jewish people from all foreign rule by whatever measures they deemed necessary. They were the jihadis of first century first century Judaism. And by that I mean that they would lie, they would steal, they would assassinate, and they were even willing to go to the grave if it would further their cause. They were a clandestine organization, which meant they were very hush-hush. It, the, 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 the organization may have been talked freely among the people if, if you were trusted, but the, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the, anyone uh, in any official capacity would have nothing to do with them. But despite that, Peter, Peter had the inside scoop on what it, what it was like to be a zealot, what it was like to be among the zealots. Do you know why? He wasn't, but one of the apostles was formerly when he was... Uh, before he was called to be a disciple of Christ, Simon the Zealot was a zealot. That's why he's called Simon the Zealot. I know I went to seminary for for that kind of hermeneutic. But he knew well, he, he surely had the inside scoop of this group because he was associated with, with one of their numbers. And Simon undoubtedly had told Peter stories, story after story of men going to the extreme in the utmost sacrifice for their nation and people. And Peter says, he, he, I, I think he takes that image, that idea of, of, of being committed, being devoted, be willing to go to the extreme, and he says, become Christians, become zealots, not for a nation, not for a people, not for, not for a political party, but become a zealot. For good, do what is do whatever is necessary to promote and to exercise and to do good. Be passionate, be zealously committed, be dedicated for doing good unto others. And in in the immediate context, I mean, you you, you can you can open up the Bible and find a, a plethora of the, of areas where it describes what it what it is to do good. But in the immediate context, Peter has just told us. As citizens, honor the king. As slaves, honor and submit to your masters. As husbands, love your wives and live in an understanding way. And wives, submit to your husbands. And as brothers and sisters in the church, be harmonious. Serve one another. Have brotherly affection for one another. Love one another. In the immediate context, that, that's the idea of doing good unto others. Be zealous for doing good. Because if you do, most likely no one's going to mess with you. That's the first principle. Second principle he gives us is, a, is that we need to have a willingness to suffer. We need to have a willingness to suffer. Verse 14 now, this is the big theme of the New Testament, that those who follow after Jesus are going to suffer like Jesus did. He 
told his disciples in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you when you are persecuted for the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 10, he says it's enough for a disciple that he be treated like his teacher. And look at how they treat the teacher. Don't expect any different. And then Paul comes along, and as Paul is wont to do, he says ever so bluntly in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so where he is, where Peter has just said this as a general principle that you can expect to avoid hostility, and I think he's talking about that unnecessary suffering, or you can say just justified suffering if you want. You can expect to avoid most of that, or if not all of that, if you are committed to doing good. The reality is, the, the sobering reality is, some people are going to rise to the occasion such that even when there's no good reason to, they're going to persecute you anyway. Some people are going are, are to do that. And should that happen, notice Peter says, even if, in verse 14, even if, you could say perchance, on the occasion, you know, if this happens, that you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, what does he say? You are blessed. See that in verse 14? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. That is countercultural thinking. Now, what, is it, what does it mean to be blessed? What, what exactly is a blessing? Well, blessed, to, to be blessed or to have a blessing can, can have a range of meaning, and it usually refers to the, to the effects of favor. That is, when we, when we look at good things that happen to us, when we see good favor being exercised towards us, when we see people, whether, whether it's God or, or people, manifesting or exercising goodwill, good favor, a good inclination, a good disposition towards us when good things fall into our laps, when favorable, pleasurable, good circumstances befall us, when, when we like the outcome, then we would say, I am blessed. You're blessed. I feel blessed. We, we are a blessed people. Or when someone says, does something kind or benefactory to us, we might say, that is such a blessing. Here, Dr. John MacArthur points out that the effect isn't the intended meaning, but it's the objective reality that you are favored by God so much so. Now, you have to catch this. You are honored and favored by God so much so that you have the honor of suffering for the name of Christ. Now, Peter has already said as much. In chapter 221, as he's addressing Christian servants, Christian slaves, he says, you have been called for this purpose. Well, what purpose? To suffer for Christ. That's the context of those verses. You've been called for the purpose of suffering for Christ. Why? Since or because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. 
So, we are blessed in the sense that God's gracious choice of us and his calling us to salvation, that, that, that those two truths, those two realities are confirmed by our following Christ into suffering. You're, you're being chosen by God and the salvation that he has given you is confirmed when you become Christ's disciple, even to the point that you follow him into suffering. And that is a blessing. In other words, when we follow after Christ, we affirm who he is, we affirm what he did, we affirm what he accomplished, and people respond to us with the very same aggression, with the same kind of response and rejection that was given to Christ, that is is a blessing to us. That is a blessing to us because it demonstrates your believing in him. Your suffering for his name verifies who you belong to. Does that make sense? Philippians 1.29, Paul is chained. In a Roman prison, he has a Roman guard within a few feet of him. And he says, he, he is actually grateful for his circumstances. And he finds reason to glorify Christ in the midst of that. And he, he's encouraging Christians outside, you know, that are they're not imprisoned. But he says, for to you it has been granted. It has been a, a gracious gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And do you remember the response of the disciples in Acts 5 when the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests and the, 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 the bigwigs of the Jewish council call the disciples in and they say, hey, all that preaching about Jesus, knock it off. And they say, uh, whether it's right to listen to you or to follow God, you be the choice, or you, you be the judge. And so the, 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 the Sanhedrin whip them and say, you know, good, you've learned your lesson, now knock it off. And they go out and they, they count it joy that they were considered worthy to suffer the shame of Christ. That's a marvelous thought. Be zealous for good and have a willingness to, to suffer because of the blessing that become manifest to you. Third principle see this in the second half of verse 14 going into verse 15 is that we ought to have a devotion to Christ a devotion to Christ have him have Christ firmly fixed in your heart and mind that he is the supreme one that he is the authority that he is the Lord, that, that, that those words, supreme, supreme authority, that's bound up in the word Lord. He says, uh, beginning in verse 14, do not fear their intimidation. How, how many of you, uh, this text is all capitalized? If you have an NASB, uh, what, the, edit, what the, the translators do is when, when they are quoting from the Old Testament, they will make it all caps. So that lets you know Peter, the, the writer is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah 8. And he says, do not, be, do not fear their intimidation 
and do not be troubled. That's the, that's the negative aspect of, of a devotion to Christ. And he says what to do, positively what to do, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So what influences you? What moves you? What prompts you to action? Is it the threats and the intimidation of men? Is it the promises of men? Or is it the reminder of who Jesus is? As Lord, it is Peter is applying this Old Testament text to tell us it is his person, it is his position, Christ's person and position that ought to be our initial and our primary influence. It's, it's his desires. It's, it's his will that ought to determine both what we do and what we don't do, what we say, what we don't say. And when the pressure's off and it's a nice, warm, well, not imagine it's a nice, warm, sunny day right now. And all is well in the world and a little bird is tweeting somewhere. Children are well behaved. Dog is curled up at your feet. If you have a cat, it's purring. Goldfish do whatever goldfish do when they're happy. When, when it's like that, have Christ set apart as Lord. When, it, when life is like that, when it's green pastures, sanctify the Christ as Lord in your hearts. But also when the pressure is on and it's raining and pouring hardship, the bills are coming in, the car just broke down, the washing machine just broke, the vacuum is making that, that weird smoky uh, smell. I mean, if the oven's making the smoky smell, it could be something good you're making. But the kids need to go to the doctor. You're exhausted. You're not getting along with your coworkers. Maybe your job's in jeopardy. Maybe, uh, maybe the heat's on at home and you and your spouse need to work things out. Maybe you have some physical concerns going on. Maybe you're depressed. And oh, Christians, Christians are never depressed. Yes, they are. Read through the Psalms. David was a man who was depressed from time to time. Maybe you're in just an absolute slump. The man who married Jennifer and I in our prayer in my prayer class, were, uh, he had two analogies to this slump that we can find ourselves in. One he called uh, a wilderness wandering, where you don't know how you got there. You don't know where you're going, and you don't know how to get out. And all you, you, you all you can do is endure it. The, the other one, the other analogy he used was Paul's road to Troas, which you can read about in Acts 16, 6 to 8. And I won't read it, but it's in two short verses. It says Paul tried to go here, but the Spirit of Christ prevented him, and he tried to go there, and God wouldn't allow it. And he ev- eventually ends up in Troas. And if you're just reading the text... Sure, you know, I, I tried to go down to the 7-Eleven, but they were closed, so I crossed the street and went to McDonald's. No big deal. Well, if you open up the book, of the, the, the apocryphal book of, of maps at the end and you look at these places, you'll find out that there were 500 miles that set Paul off course. And it wasn't nice, flat, grassy meadows. It was rugged mountains. I mean, to think of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring going over that snowy ice cap. 
and to think. Paul, I mean, he's trying to evangelize. He's trying to, to share the good news. And he's offset by 500 mountain miles. And it, it, it ended good. They, they concluded that God was calling them to Macedonia. But the point is, is there are times in our life where we get, it seems like we're knocked off course. and We don't know why we are where we are. We don't know why things are the way they are. And the secret, if, if this can be called a secret, is, is whether things are good or whether things just are stinky. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. Because before the bad times happen, before the heat gets turned on, you want to be mentally, emotionally, spiritually where you need to be so that you're prepared, so that you're equipped. In Isaiah's day, the, 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 the basis behind this quotation of Isaiah 8, with Isaiah and with many of the prophets of old, the people of Israel were, were wavering. They have the covenant that their forefathers had made with Yahweh to be his people and they would be his God and they would follow him and trust him. And they had all these other gods and that they could turn to for aid and all these other nations and their kings and their, and their faiths that they could turn to. And the temptation for them was to think Yahweh's not really stepping up to the plate. He's not stepping up to the plate in the way that they wanted it or when they wanted it. And maybe they should see what other powers, what other nations and kings and what other gods had to offer. So God tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz, the king of Judah, not to listen to those who have compromised their faith. Who have said in their hearts, or who in their hearts they have already sworn allegiance to other gods and other kings and who are... Men who would say that those who are advocating faithfulness to God, it's just a conspiracy. Don't listen to those faithful Jews trying to encourage you to stay true to Yahweh. That's just a conspiracy. Isaiah is telling King Ahaz, don't listen to those men saying it is a conspiracy. Let me, let me read to you from Isaiah 8. Verses... Uh, Isaiah 8, 11 to 14. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people who say, uh, uh, he said, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And this is where Peter begins the quote. And you are not to fear what they fear. Or be in dread of it. It is, the, it is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And then, presuming you have made him your fear and your dread, then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. Then they will be snared and caught. So let me ask you. With the people of Israel. 
did Yahweh prove himself faithful? Did the Lord God preserve the remnant of his faithful? And did he bring into judgment the wicked? Yes. Let me ask you concerning the Roman Empire. Did God prove himself faithful to preserve his church? Did God prove himself faithful to bring into judgment those who brought affliction to his people? Yes. What's the point? God was faithful in the past. He is faithful in the present. He will be faithful in the future. That means that he is worthy to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be placed as Lord in your heart. That's where it has to begin. Obedience to God has to begin in the heart. It has to be an internal reality. Obedience to God can't be an externally forced thing. It is an internal response from true worshipers. You must be convinced that Christ is who the scriptures reveal himself to be. That he is God, that he is Lord, that he is supreme, that he is the one with authority. That his his person, his being, his words, he commands submission. Simply because of who he is. And that that kind of response, that faithful response to him, to Christ, yields boldness. It yields courage and it yields fortitude. I, I that, love that word, fortitude, that, that idea of binding up and becoming strong. It grants fortitude so that Christians can trump through the most adverse situations when things get really, really when things get tough, the, the, the believer remembers Christ is Lord. And nothing, no, no painful circumstance, no threat, no, no intimidation, no calamity, no person, no political power, no nation, no political movement, no ideology, no power has ever dislodged him, nor will ever dislodge him, nor can ever dislodge Christ from his post as Lord. Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, have you? The word sanctify means to, to set apart. It means to affirm your submission to Christ's control, to his instruction, to his guidance, to set apart, to consecrate, to put something unique in a unique place for a unique purpose or, or for a unique function. Sanctifying Christ means giving him the primary place of worship and adoration. It's to exalt Christ. It's to get, put him in a place in your heart and your mind that only God can be. So, friend, you must be certain that you have sanctified Christ, that you have exaltified, that you have exalted Jesus Christ to the right place. 
Have you? Have you? Have you put him where he deserves to be? Or have you said it's enough that he was a good teacher? It's enough for me that he was a prophet mighty in word and mighty in deed. It's it's enough for me that he was a handsome Caucasian man with a white robe and a purple sash and a Thomas Kincaid painting or, or that one of those flannel graphs that we all had in Sunday school. It's enough that he was a, a good teacher, a wise man, a guru that taught a good way how to live. That's enough for me. Set him apart as the supreme one, as Lord in your mind, in your heart. What did Jesus say about those who hear what he said and did not do them? They're like the foolish man. You know what I'm talking about in Matthew 7? Those who hear what I say and don't do the, doesn't do it is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, which is an astonishing thing for those who heard Jesus say this because it's common sense. You don't build your house. You don't build the, the edifice where you live, where you place your precious family, where you put your stuff, where you put your own body. You don't build that on, you don't, you don't be so foolish as to build that on a, a, on a bad or poor foundation, or on a compromised foundation. And yet, Jesus has the audacity to say, he who hears what I say and doesn't do it is like that fool. And if that's if he was just a man, if he was merely a man, then his hearers would have good reason to scoff at him. But Scripture says he is the God-man. He is the Lord, the sovereign one, the supreme one, the one with authority. Peter says, sanctify him, this Christ, as Lord in your hearts. Fourth, Going into verse, the middle of verse 15, the fourth principle is a readiness to defend and explain the faith. He, Peter continues in verse 15. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Christian, you must be ready to make a defense for the faith, for your faith, not the faith of your parents, not the faith of, of all your friends, not the faith of all the fellow students at your Christian school, your faith. The Greek word uh, used for defense here is apologia. This is where we get the word, uh, from what, the word from which we get apology or apologetics. And no, it doesn't mean to say that you are sorry. It means literally to speak out from. Apo means out of or away from. Logia, to say a word. And it, it was a technical term used to describe uh, a, a prepared, thought-out uh, uh, defense or an appeal. It, it's the word that Paul uh, uses in Acts 25.16 when he says, It's not the custom of Romans to hand over any, anybody until he is allowed to meet his accusers face-to-face and make his defense. 
in Second uh, Timothy 4.16, he says, at, at my first defense, no one supported me. So in, in this sense, an, an apologia is not this, I'm going to wing it, I'm going to shoot from the hip, uh, uh, attempt to convince somebody of something. It is a reasonable, it is a thought out, it is a prepared appeal, a prepared defense. And this implies, this means that Christian, you and I, ought to have enough, a solid enough grasp of the gospel, of the details of our faith, so that we can explain it to those who are curious and defend it against those who are critical and bring accusations. It's not enough that you are just faintly acquainted with some of the things. You must be able to grasp and understand your faith. Well, when, when, Aaron, when am I supposed to have this defense ready? Peter says, always. Well, why? Why, why all the time? Why do I always need to be prepared? Because there's always going to be those who are either curious or critical of the gospel. And it behooves your testimony. It behooves, it strengthens, it reinforces and bolsters your evangelism to be ready, to be willing, to be equipped and prepared to respond. But even more than that, even more than what it does for your testimony, having a more solid grasp of your faith, of the truth of the gospel, of of a firm understanding of why you need to be in Christ, why you need your sins forgiven, and where you would be had they not been forgiven, and what your hope would have been had you not been giving the living hope of the gospel and have become a reconciled child of God. Have Peter's saying, have all of those things settled in your heart and in your mind before you are challenged. Because if you are caught unaware, if you are caught unprepared in the midst of hard trial, in the midst of suffering, when the heat is turned on, when the pressure is on, and you can't think straight, and you're running out of time, who's going to crumble? You are. I would. If you can't articulate the hope that you stand in and what you are faithfully waiting for others, if you can't make it clear to others, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have difficulty making it clear to the one person who really needs to be reminded of the Christian hope when you're standing in hard times. And who is that one person who really needs to hear it when you're the one standing in trouble? You. The midst of trial, the midst, the, 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 in the middle of suffering, the presence of, of, of tribulation is not the time that you want to add doubt and frustration and misunderstanding and a lack of clarity to your pile of woes. That's not the time that you want, that you ideally want to be figuring stuff out and what, what you really believe. So understand and think through your own understanding, your own 
standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can effectively, clearly communicate it to the curious, defend it to the critical, and so that you can reinforce your own conviction. Because all are beneficial. Just pretend you only saw three. Now, this is one of the this is perhaps the primary verse that sets apologetics. If it, has anyone not heard the term apologetics? Okay, so this is the the primary verse used to set down apologetics as as something Christians have to be doing. They need to be doing, and there are many who I have looked to who have who are able to articulate the gospel, and they are able to explain. And defend various doctrines, but you would think, based on their ministry, if you were to listen to them, if you were to subscribe to their YouTube channels, listen to their podcasts, or read their books, you would think that maybe their Bible ends at verse 15b. Because often what they say can come off as being rash, abrasive, unloving, arrogant, judgmental, willful forceful, intimidating, condescending. I mean, need I go on? Has anyone ever not encountered Christians who they can say the right thing, but because they are lacking love, they are like a clanging gong in an orchestra? Has anyone never had, never known someone like that? Well, look at, look at how verse 15 concludes. This is how Peter says, he, he, he provides the manner in which we need to make our apologia, our, our, our reasoned defense. Yet with what? Gentleness and reverence. Oh, that all Christians would be able to articulate what they believe with gentleness and reverence. I mean, by all means, be firm. Be uncompromising in your explanation and in your, in your defense of the gospel. But don't be jerky. Don't be hot-headed. Don't be irreverent while you're doing it. Because you shoot yourself and you, you, you undermine your, your efforts and what you're striving to do. And that's reach the person. Gentleness means meekness. It means humility. It's, it's, it's not being Weak, although it can be translated weak, it's not weak in the sense that you and I think about it. But this is this is talking about having power and strength under control. It is having the means and the capability to respond and lash out, but you restrain yourself. I think the most incredible image of that is when Christ is 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 suffering in imprisonment, and he says. Don't you know I could call down legions of angels of my father's armies? But I won't. He had the he could have stopped his suffering in an instant, but he didn't. He had power, but it was under his control. I think Christ is is the paragon of meekness. Reverence. comes from the word phobia. You've heard that. And it can mean fear, but it's often contextually describing reverence, 
or respect, and that's the idea here, which is why your translators translate it the way they have, reverence. And think about this. You're dealing with the souls of people. The souls of men and women are not trite things. They're not little knickknacks that you see in a pawn shop or the 98-cent clearance store. These are souls of men and women fashioned in the image of God. You're dealing with the souls of people and the subject matter in which you are relating to them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think both of these considerations demonstrate clearly that your apologia is not something to be taken lightly. If you are if you've invited a guest, an important guest, over to your house, and you have some exquisite, fine, precious, valuable china that you are going to serve tea, or in my house it's coffee, because that's what we drink, that's what I drink. Are you going to gallop through the house and sling and slam that fine china down and say, there you go, enjoy it? No, you're going to be careful with it. You're going to be respectful with it because you cherish it and you value it. How much more ought we to treat with gentleness, with controlled strength, and with reverence the precious treasure of the gospel in the hearts of soul and souls of people that God puts in our path? Fourth, we've been told to be zealous for good, to be willing to suffer to be devoted to Christ and to graciously be ready, or to, or to be ready to graciously defend our faith. Lastly, he tells us to have, keep a clean conscience. He begins in verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, this isn't given so much as to prevent hostility or harassment from people who are going to show themselves to be critical or antagonistic to the gospel, no matter what you do, but this is to cut the hamstring. This principle, this last one that Peter gives us, is given to cut the hamstring of a source of suffering so great that even even dreadnoughts, even the mightiest of men, even the Goliaths, are brought to their knees. Now, it's one thing to have an antagonistic coworker. It's one thing to have a critical employer, a bitter spouse, because there are periods of reprieve from those folks, right? After being in the ring with the likes of them, there are quarters that you can retreat to for a moment of respite, but there is a greater antagonist. There is a more blunt critic. There is a more persistent nag and that is a guilty conscience. That is an evil conscience. That is a harmful conscience. Now consider, nobody knows you like like your conscience does. Nobody knows you like you, right? Nobody knows you like your conscience does. He's been there the whole time. He heard everything. He saw everything. 
He's got more taps on you than the NSA, and it's all on tape. It's all been reviewed. There's nowhere you can go where your conscience can't follow. You can climb Mount Everest. You can climb the Himalayas. He's already there. You could camp out in the lowest valley, go off-grid, turn your cell phone off. He's, he's already got a campfire started. Every step of the journey, there he is reminding you uh, what you did, how bad it was, and what, what happened as a result. And he's also reminding you, you could have done this, you should have done that. And there are only two ways to silence a guilty conscience. One is to ignore him and let, let him prattle on and on and on and on. Eventually he goes hoarse and he can't talk anymore. And scripture calls that searing the conscience, which is not a good thing because... Romans 3 tells us that the conscience is the only uh, faculty of a, of a fallen man that's still loyal to God. It's, it's a good thing to have the conscience. The other is to the other is to have your conscience wiped clean by the forgiveness of Christ. Hebrews 10:22, speaking of the superior priesthood of Christ, uh, exhorts believers, "Let us draw near." with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's, those are two ways we can respond to having an evil conscience. But Peter, is, Peter is, is urging us, exhorting us, pleading with us, with me and with you, keep your conscience clean. Keep it pure. From sin. Now, of, of what sins is Peter instructing us to keep our consciences clean from? Well, he's been telling us the sphere and the, perp- and the intended purpose of keeping a clean conscience. He says it right here in verse 16. In the thing in which you are slandered. So that, and you keep it clean so that in that thing, in those things in which you are being slandered, those if you keep a clean conscience, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So what gives a Christian an evil conscience? It's sinning in such a way that gives the critics of Christ grounds to slander those who belong to Christ. Whatever behavior we may do that gives warrant to bring an accusation against us, Peter says, stop it. Repent of it. Repent of that and have such a behavior so that your conscience is clean. And when that happens, those who continue to revile you, to those who continue, who persist to say evil against you and slander you will be put to shame. Why? Because the accusations they bring, the hooks that they bring, they're not going to find any meat to sink into. It's going to be like, trying to put two pieces of the same side of the Velcro on each other. They're not going to stick. They're just going to fall apart. William MacDonald says, any Christian who knows he is innocent of any crime can go through persecution with the boldness of a lion. But if he has a bad conscience, he will be plagued with feelings of guilt and will not be able to stand against the foe. So, friend, keep a clean conscience. We have concluded that adversity and hostility is 
certainly the reality for Christians. If you haven't suffered yet, relax. Suffering's coming. But Scripture tells us that suffering, I, I hope you have seen in this, that suffering for the Christian is actually a privilege, is a spiritual privilege. And if you realize, if you agree and affirm with Scripture that God causes all things, the good times and the bad, to work together for good for those who love God, you will be able to accept suffering as part of God's plan for you. And you will be better equipped. You will be better prepared with his securities that he intended for you to prevent unnecessary suffering and when it is necessary to suffer well. Let me conclude with a quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare the way for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so afflictions prepare and make us ready for glory. The painter lays his gold upon dark colors. So God first lays the dark colors of affliction, and then he lays the golden contour of glory. The vessel is first seasoned before wine is poured into it, the vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial, but beneficial for the saints. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, the Supreme One, we Thank you that you have conquered the grave and that you have promised to forever keep those who belong to you. You have promised that you would not lose one. You have promised that you would raise up in the last day those who believe in you. Help us to endure suffering. Help us to suffer well. Help us to look beyond any and all momentary afflictions that we find ourselves in. Help us to trust in the plan of your Heavenly Father. And even when we don't see why we are allowed or led into seasons and valleys of suffering, help us to trust that you have a purpose and a design behind all of it. You have time and time and time again proven yourself to be a good and faithful God. Help us to be a good and faithful people. Amen.